I read a, a booklet a few years ago. I think it was one of the New Growth Press booklets on an empty nest. And the woman author made the statement, which I've remembered these several years, life is full of divestments. Life is full of letting things go. And don't we know it very well? Some of you women have already given birth to your last child, and you will never experience childbirth again. Maybe some of you are glad for that. Others of you are on the beginning of that journey, but the time will come when you will give birth to your last child. You homeschool moms will get to the place where your youngest child will have their last day in school, and 10, 15, 20 years of schooling will be in the rearview mirror as your schooling will be a thing of the past. Um, your children, your house may be now bustling with the sounds of children's voices and activities will give way to the relative silence of just a husband-wife conversation as your nest empties out. And it's just you and your husband or wife, and the children are gone from the parental home. Men and some women will have to retire from their jobs, and no longer will they do the routine that they've done for decades. They'll do other work, but forever gone will be that daily work routine. I remember several years ago giving up running. I've been a runner since my teen years into my mid-60s, but then an old knee injury caught up with me and I realized I can't run anymore. The only running I do is after my speedy three-year-old granddaughter in the Grace Community Church parking lot. But other than that, running is a thing of the past for me. Uh, some people will have to give up driving at a certain age. Some people will even have to give up their home. Life is full of divestments. There are some things we will do for the last time. A lot of things we will do for the last time. Well, as we come in our study of Mark to Mark chapter 10, and I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, we reach a turning point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. For about a year and a half, he has conducted his ministry in the northern part of, Galilee, of Palestine, known as Galilee. There he has taught multitudes, he has healed many, he has done many miracles. That is known as the great Galilean ministry. Now that did give way for several months to what we called the retirement ministry, where Jesus focused on training the 12 and preparing them for what was coming. But even that took place partly in the region of Galilee. But now, as we come to chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus leaves Galilee for good. He will never return to Galilee again in his earthly ministry, although he will make a resurrection appearance there. And where does he go? Mark 10, verse 1, getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Where does he go from Galilee? Well, the word region can actually be translated border or boundary, and he actually travels southeast into the region of Perea. Perea is a, a part of Palestine east of the Jordan River. And so what we have in chapter 10 is the Perean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you know from that verse, once again, he's amidst the crowds. The crowds are thronging around him. We see from that verse the primacy of the teaching ministry. As the crowds gather around, as was his custom, he once more began to teach them. Yes, he worked miracles. Yes, he cast out demons. But his main ministry on earth was to teach and we see it again here. 
But then in the midst of this ministry to the masses, Jesus is once again accosted by his sworn enemies, the Pharisees. And this time they face him with a question about divorce. And not only does Jesus stifle their wicked designs with his characteristic wisdom, but he gives us some important teaching about the matter of marriage and divorce. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12, but we'll only cover the first nine verses this morning. Picking up on verse 2, some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So like I said, we're going to cover just the first nine verses and then the remainder in another sermon. And from those nine verses, we're going to see these three things. The Pharisees question about divorce. Jesus' correction of the Pharisees' misconceptions about divorce, and then Jesus' direction to the Pharisees about God's original purpose for marriage. So the Pharisees' question about divorce in verses 2 to 4. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. We want to see here the motive, the manner, and the main focus of the Pharisees in asking this question. First of all, what was their motive? Well, true to form, it was as it always was. Not a healthy, wholesome motive, but a malicious motive. It says testing him, right? Their intention was to test him. It's the same word for tempt. And like their father, the devil, in testing him, in tempting him, they didn't want him to pass the test. They wanted him to fail the test. As always, they were looking for some grounds of accusation against Jesus. Just remember their history in the book of Mark. In chapter 2, they accused Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they accused his disciples of picking grain on the Sabbath, supposedly doing work on the Sabbath. In chapter 3, they accused Jesus of healing on the Sabbath, even though he wanted to just heal a man with a withered hand. And they accused him of being possessed by Beelzebul, the devil. In chapter 7, they find fault with the disciples because they're supposedly eating with ceremonially unwashed hands. In chapter 8, they come seeking a sign from him. And so once again, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, not to sit at his feet, not to learn from him, not to be instructed by him, not to be corrected by him, but simply to find fault with him, to incriminate him and try to turn the people against him. Some commentators point to the fact that this region of Perea was the, the region where John the Baptist had conducted his ministry. And remember how John had been arrested by Herod, put in prison, and eventually killed. And one of the reasons was John had spoken out boldly against Herod's illicit marriage to his brother Philip's wife. 
And some commentators think maybe they're trying to get set up Jesus to suffer the same fate. Maybe Jesus will be arrested by Herod and killed as well when he sets forth his view of divorce. Some speculate about that. But clearly their motive was malicious. They didn't question Jesus to learn truth from him, but only to test him and to ensnare him. And what about their manner? How were they hoping to ensnare him? Well, they were hoping to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They were trying to get him to choose between two schools of rabbinic thought. Now, to understand this, we need to turn back in our Bibles to Deuteronomy 24, because that's the text that comes into focus here. Turn back for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and follow as I read the first four verses. The words of God through Moses, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from the house, and she leaves this house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then, the implied then, her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, this is the Mosaic legislation that relates to divorce. And it speaks about a man giving his wife a certificate of divorce. The grounds for that divorce is some indecency. According to our New American Standard or your ESV Bible, in your King James Bible, it is some uncleanness, right? The reason for giving her a certificate of divorce is some uncleanness. Now, the Hebrew phrase is erwath debar, and it's rather vague and enigmatic. Literally, it, it means the nakedness of a thing. Sometimes it is translated as nakedness, but in the near context of Leviticus 24, Leviticus 23, 12 to 14, it actually refers to excrement. So what does the uncleanness or the indecency refer to in Deuteronomy 24.1? Well, it's certainly something shameful, something indecent, something improper, something offensive. But what is it in particular? That's what the rabbis wrangled over. They tried to figure out what was the grounds, what, what is this indecency, the basis of which a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and release her. They debated this, and there were basically two schools of thought in the first century. The one school was the school of um, Hillel. Well, let's take Shammai first. Shammai was very strict and restrictive in his interpretation of the grounds for divorce. He said it had to be something very serious, maybe adultery. I remember it by Shammai Strict, S.S. The school of Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, was much more lax and lenient and literally said that a, a man could give his wife a certificate divorce for almost anything that was offensive. Literally, if she burned the food or if she spoke too loudly so that the neighbors heard, that was grounds enough to give her a certificate of divorce. And so there were these two schools of thought. One was lenient and the other was rather strict. And by asking the question of Jesus, 
you know, whether it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Actually, it's more clear in Matthew's version. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Indicating that the Pharisees were probably in the more liberal camp, the easy divorce camp, the Hillel camp. And what they were trying to do is get Jesus to choose between these two schools. If he sided with the Shammai strict school, well, then the followers Hillel would be against him. If he sided with the looser, laxer Hillel school, then the Shammai people would be against him. And they thought, ah, we've got him. We've got him on the horns of a dilemma. There's no way out. It's sort of like asking the question, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Either way you answer, you're implicated. If you say yes, that means you were beating your wife. If you say no, that means you're still beating your wife. And so there's no easy way out of that. And they thought, ah, we got Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. He's got to choose. And either way, part of the crowd is going to turn against him. So that was their manner of approach. What was their main focus? Verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They responded, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. This answer of the Pharisees not only reveals their evil motive, it also tells us what their main focus was when it comes to this matter of divorce. When Jesus asks, so um, what did Moses say? They had five books of Moses to choose from, right? Moses wrote a lot. But where do their minds go? Their minds go to Deuteronomy 24, which provides the only loophole, so to speak, for divorce. And in their view, following Hillel, it was for easy divorce. The Pharisees were typical legalists. Legalists, legalists just want to obey God externally. They want to do just enough to think that they're, they're doing the right thing. They don't really have a religion of the heart. They don't really want to know what is the mind of God. What is God's law? What is God's will? What is God's ideal? A legalist is always looking for a way to escape duty to God and finds that escape often in man-made rules and outward compliance to certain things. And so when it came to divorce, the Pharisees were fixated on this text, which seemed to provide an out for them from perhaps a difficult marriage. That was their main focus. When Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Their minds run to Deuteronomy 24. Ah, he gave us a way out. All we needed to do is get the paperwork right and we could divorce our wives. Well, now let's see Jesus' correction of the Pharisees' misconceptions about divorce. In verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, here we need to consider God's original intention in allowing for that permission in Deuteronomy 24. Rightly understood, friends, Deuteronomy 24 is not given to encourage divorce. It's actually given to discourage it. When we read Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 rightly, according to the Hebrew scholars, the first three verses are the if clause, and the then clause is in verse 4. So follow again. I know this is a little difficult, but it's crucial to understanding. Follow again 
what would be the correct reading of this passage. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, all that is if, 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 then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. This passage is not saying that divorce is right and mandatory. It is not given to encourage divorce. It is actually given to discourage divorce. It is actually given to say to the man, if you put away your wife and all of this happens, please understand that she is gone for good. You may not take her again to be your wife. What Deuteronomy 24 is doing is is it is recognizing an existing reality in that society. Men were putting away their wives, and the permission is simply to regulate it, to mitigate worse consequences, and largely for the protection of the woman, so that she would have proof of being free from the marital responsibilities and to protect her reputation. It's an accommodation to a sinful reality God is making legal allowance of this, but really he wants to discourage it, not encourage it. He's not saying that it's morally legitimate, that it's good, that God is in favor of it. It's an accommodation to the, well, as we'll see, to the hardness of their heart. But what, how are the Pharisees misconceiving, misperceiving it? Well, back again to our text in, in Mark 10, in verse 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. The way the Pharisees were looking at it, they were seeing that the legality of it sanctioned the morality of it. Because God approved of it, God permitted it, therefore God must approve of it. But their preoccupation was with their license to divorce their wives. And they were not understanding the intent of the text. It was not to give credence to divorce. It was not an approval from God of divorce. It was actually to discourage divorce. And Jesus clarifies that in verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. When God gave that permission through Moses, God was not approving it as part of his moral law. He was not saying that this is good but God allowed it only because of the hard-hearted rebellion of their hearts. They were rebelling against God's standard. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you ought not to be glorying in your right to be divorced. You should not be just glibly debating the various grounds for divorce. Let's back up. God is not sanctioning divorce as something good and right in Deuteronomy 24 the very legislation is a testimony to the hardness of hearts of the people, their stubborn rebellion against the divine will. And what is the divine will? Finally, Jesus gives direction to the Pharisees about God's original purpose for marriage. The Pharisees thought they had pinned Jesus down. 
with their narrow rabbinic perspective, blinded by sin and God's true intent, they thought Jesus was going to be forced to decide between the Shammai and the Hillel school. But our wise new covenant lawgiver throws them a curve. He gets behind the legislation of Deuteronomy 24, which was an accommodation to man's sin, and he goes back to God's original commands and God's original intent. You see, when God said, or when Jesus said, what did Moses command you? He probably wasn't thinking about Deuteronomy 24 as they were. He was probably thinking of Genesis 1. Moses, under God, wrote Genesis 1, 27, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. When he said, what did Moses command? That's probably what Jesus was thinking of. But their minds ran to that loophole for divorce in Deuteronomy 24. But notice what Jesus says. First of all, he shows that divorce is contrary to the divine intention in creation. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is saying, never mind Deuteronomy 24. Let's go back to God's original intention in creation. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Consider that even before God made the woman, he made the man, and he made him as a male. His very constitution by creation calls for his counterpart, a female. And it's very obvious, even by physiology, that maleness and femaleness go together. They belong together, not separate. And so God's very Divine intention in the creation and making male and female points to them coming together and not being apart as in divorce. But further, divorce is contrary to the divine institution of marriage. Seven and eight. For this reason, having made them male and female, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. I'm sorry. Yeah. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one. Based on this divine intention in creation to make them male and female, God institutes marriage. And here Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24. Do you see any divorce in this? God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. There is no divorce in that. He's saying, here's the man whose primary relationship growing up is in his home with his parents. That's the primary emotional attachment, the primary economic dependency. Now that relationship is to be severed in favor of a superseded relationship, namely with the spouse. And that is to take the place of the filial relationship They are the two that are to become one flesh. Now, obviously, when the scriptures talk about one flesh, physical intimacy is in mind. And we should never view physical intimacy in marriage as something unclean or dirty. It is sanctioned by God. Hebrews tells us the marriage bed is undefiled. It is clean. God is pleased with it. But to speak of one flesh is not merely talking about the physical union. 
It's also talking about a deeper relational oneness. Wayne Mack puts it this way. Marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. And he talks about sharing everything. They share their bodies, their possessions, their insights, their ideas, their abilities, their problems, their successes, their sufferings, their failures. And so Jesus is correcting their focus and saying divorce is contrary to the divine intention in creation. God made them male and female, and male and female belong together. And divorce is contrary to the divine institution of marriage. It is God who said the man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And further, divine divorce is contrary to the divine sanction of marriage. There in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is not a human institution. The way it's being treated today, you would think man invented it, and so man can change the rules and the terms according to his will. Marriage is not a human institution. It was not invented as a social expedient or a social convenience. Marriage has God as its author. It was God who designed them male and female, making the woman out of the man and for the man. It was God who brought the first woman to the man. God officiated at the first marriage ceremony. He brought the woman to the man and performed the first wedding And it was God who gave the goals, the purposes, and the boundaries of marriage. Marriage is totally of God's establishment. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And for people to intrude upon God's institution of marriage, first of all, to determine what constitutes a marriage, and then to determine what breaks a marriage, is high-handed rebellion against the creator and his creation ordinance. John Murray says, divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraved by the hand of God. And so Jesus, you see how he deals with these enemies. They come to him probably of the Hillel school. They want easy divorce. Their fixation is, how do we get out of this bad marriage? What did Moses say? Oh, Moses said, uh, just get the paperwork right, and we can give her a bill of divorce. They misunderstand the intention of Deuteronomy 24. It was not to sanction it. It was not to make it moral. God was not approving of it. He was accommodating to it because of their sin. And even in that, he was not seeking to make it easy but hard. He was having the man say, look, if you give her a certificate of divorce, know this that she's gone for good. So you better think twice about what you do. So even in accommodating to divorce, he wasn't making it easy. He wanted to make it more difficult for them. And so they had this loosey-goosey attitude about divorce. And Jesus cuts through Deuteronomy 4, goes back to the beginning. And he gives the original intention. How could he do that with authority? Well, because he's the divine lawgiver, right? Along with his father, He's the lawgiver, not Moses. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, it's talking about rabbinic interpretation, but I say to you, not contradicting the commands of his father, but contradicting the rabbis. You've heard it has been said by such and such a rabbi, but I say to you, here's the final word, here's the final divine 
commentary on that commandment because he's the divine lawgiver. So Jesus didn't stoop to wrangle with the other rabbis. Well, he's going to give his opinion as another rabbi. No, he rises to higher ground. He takes them back to the beginning and he takes them back to God's original intention. And his original intention was to make male and female, to bring them together in the institution of marriage. And marriage was to be a permanent institution till death separates you. And so Jesus doesn't get pinned down on the horns of a dilemma, does he? Our wise new covenant lawgiver rises above the fray and authoritatively takes his questioners back to the original intention of God when he created the human race and instituted marriage and he shows that that did not include divorce. So, stopping at that point, what should we apply to ourselves? Well, let me first say that I think seeing the Pharisees and the way they conducted themselves reminds us again of the nature of external religion, superficial, legalistic, externalistic religion. We should observe it and avoid it. The Pharisees are so true to form. They're just looking for loopholes. They're not coming to God and saying, Lord, what is your mind? What is your heart? What is your will? I want to know it and I want to seek to follow it. They're looking for legal loopholes. And that's what externalistic, traditionalistic, superficial, tradition-bound religion does, right? Wants to check the boxes. It doesn't want to have heart dealings with God. And so we see the Pharisees they are exhibit A of, of legalistic religion given to us because we're all legalists at heart, right? And we need to avoid that kind of religion, the religion of the Pharisees, the religion of the, the traditionalist who's just looking for legal loopholes. True religion deals with God at a heart level. We also do well to recognize the kind accommodation of God and worship him for it. God's will for marriage does not include divorce. It's till death do they part. And yet God saw his rebellious people practicing divorce. And in his kindness, he makes accommodation to them. He is a kind God. That doesn't mean that he is not a God of principle, but he accommodates to them in order to mitigate worse evils. He's a God of mercy. And because of their hardness of heart, he permitted them to write a certificate of divorce. So our God is a holy God, but he's a God who in the midst of wrath does remember mercy. And in your own contemplation of God and perception of God, remember that. Yes, he's a God of inflexible justice, but he's also a God of kindness and compassion and mercy. And in his mercy, he accommodates to them in their hardness of heart. A third application is we need to take note that Jesus affirms the Genesis account and, and we need to believe it for ourselves. Some people struggle over the early chapters of Genesis, don't they? Could that really be true history? Did God really create one man, one woman? Do we believe those chapters of Genesis? Well, if you don't, you've got a problem with Jesus. You've got a bigger problem than a problem with Moses you got a problem with Jesus. Jesus believed those things. He quoted those things. Now, some will say, well, it was an accommodation. It wasn't an accommodation to his enemies. It was out of conviction. He was taking them back to what was true. And so Jesus believed the early chapters of Genesis. He believed the creation account. He's the co-creator. 
And if you have problems believing the early chapters of Genesis, you've got problems with Jesus because he believed those things to be the very word of God. And then we need to take note of Christ's own claim to authority and submit to it. Jesus doesn't stoop to side with one rabbi or another and enter yet another rabbinic uh, opinion. He takes the higher ground. He aligns himself with God, his Father, and he declares God's word, just as he did in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say unto you, Jesus Christ is our divine new covenant lawgiver, and we do well to obey the words that Peter, James, and John heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And it is our best counsel to listen to Jesus as our divine lawgiver. And then, finally, recognize marriage is an institution ordained by God and embrace it as permanent. Permanent. Jesus says here, what therefore God has joined together, lo- let no man separate. You want to talk about divorce? You want to talk about the Irwath Debar and what are the grounds of divorce? Well, I want to talk about God's original intention for marriage. And it was that the man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage, as ordained by God, is intended to be a permanent institution. And so I say to you, young, single men and women, make sure you're fully aware of that before you enter into marriage. By God's design, it is for keeps. There is to be no back door. Choose wisely. What do we say when I marry someone reverently, advisedly, soberly? We use these words. You're entering into this covenant reverently in the fear of God, soberly, advisedly. You've taken good counsel. And you're marrying this person for keeps. This person will be the father of your children, the mother of your children. It will affect generations. God intends it to be a lasting institution. Till death do us part. I've recommended an excellent book by Deepak Reju, one of the counselors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. She's got the wrong guy. Every single eligible single young woman ought to read that. She's got the wrong guy. Why smart women settle. It gives 10 kinds of men you don't want to marry, at least not while they're in that state. Good book for young single women. And I've even given it to young men. This is the kind of guy you don't want to be if you want a godly young woman to marry you. Not only for women, it's, it's for you men as well. Yeah, she's got the wrong guy. So marry wisely, marry well, and you will bless generations. But then to you who are married, I remind you that marriage is for keeps. There's, you enter a room with no back door. And it would be unrealistic for me to think that even the marriages in this place where I esteem you family so highly and the marriages so highly, God has given us a mature church so far. That's so that we could reach the immature, right? He's given us a good base. But I would be unwise if I didn't think that there were struggles even within the marriages here. I mean, let's face it, as husband and wife, as much as we love each other, there are times we just don't like each other, right? We're just not all that likable at times. And whereas perhaps we've never considered seriously divorce, many Christians do. You have to be reminded, uh, we're in it for keeps. And here is the great encouragement. As Christians, we are changeable. 
We can change. And the things that offend my wife, the things that a wife does that offend a husband, they can be changed by the grace of God. Someone has half-heartedly, uh, jokingly said, we're not human beings, we're human becomings. Because we're not what we once were and we're not what we, we will be. God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the things that you do that annoy your wife, that annoy your husband, that irritate them, sinful or not, you can change. You can grow out of those things and not be the person you were a year ago or five years ago. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that good news? We can change. God is at work in us. That's why Christian marriages should work and should last. And so cling to that reality. God is at work in you to will and to do. And change in those areas where you're irritating and annoying your spouse uh, wrongly. And then we can forgive one another. And it's easy to forgive when the person who offended me is no longer the person that offended me. And that's what the grace of God does in our lives. That's why Christian marriages have so much hope. That's why it's so tragic when you hear that even 50% of Christian marriages, so-called, are ending in divorce. In many cases, we have to question, are they really biblical Christians? So, but I close by saying to anyone who may not be a Christian, you know, that's a glorious truth about the Christian. The Christian is able to change because God is obviously changing us. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, you can't change all that much. The non-believer can make some reforms by common grace, but they can't really change deeply and permanently like a Christian can. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, you don't have that hope of being able to change. You don't have as much hope of having a happy marriage. Uh, but there's something far more important than a happy marriage, a happy life. And there's something far more important than a happy life. And that's a happy eternity. And apart from Jesus Christ, you will not stand as good a chance of having a happy marriage or a happy life, but worst of all, you will not have a happy eternity because Jesus said there's a heaven and there's a hell. And only those who trust in him have their sins forgiven and go to heaven and live with him forever on a new heavens and a new earth. Those who reject him and do not come to him will spend eternity separated from him in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched as we saw recently. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, I plead with you to put your faith in him. You'll much more likely have a happy marriage. You're much more likely to have a happy life. But ah, most importantly, you will have a blessed and happy eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your will as revealed through your word. Help us to delight in it, rejoice in it, even as those in the distinct minority in our day. Lord, you plus you are a majority, Lord. As long as we are on your side, we are on the right side. We will prove to be on the right side of history because we are on your side. So help us to cling to your ways, be unashamed of them, to practice them, and to proclaim them for the good of our neighbors. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.